You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. I invite you to be seated. For about 10 minutes in college, I was a history major. And I realized that this was not my destiny because to be a good historian, you need to to know names and dates and to care about dates and names. But I didn't have the patience for that. Tell me why it matters. So I switched to being a philosophy major instead. And I say this because it's kind of as an admission or a little confession. Because if you had held a gun to my head last week and told me to name the 12 apostles, I'd be in trouble. And you'd probably be in jail. I'd say Peter, because he's Peter, and everyone knows Peter. John, James, Matthew, Nathaniel, Thaddeus, a couple of Simons, and a couple of Judases. But I, I don't know. I, you, maybe I'd get 11. I just didn't think it was that important. Right? It's just 12. I normally just think of the, the disciples as 12 bumpkins who follow Jesus around to give us negative examples, examples of what not to do. And that's really why they're important. And, and in my defense, it's not just confusing, or it's not just boring, it's confusing. Some of the disciples have two names. One of them has three. And sometimes two disciples have the same name. So did you know, for instance, that the name James appears no less than three times on the list of the disciples? There's James, the son of Zebedee. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's Judas, the son of James. But that James is not the same as the other two Jameses. And none of those Jameses are the James who wrote the book of James. That's a fourth James. There's actually a fifth one in there somewhere, eventually. And there actually, then you have two Simons. One of those Simons gets renamed Peter. And then one of those Judases dies, and we get replaced with another one, Matthias, but not Matthew. It's like, okay, no, I'm done. I'm done. That's too much. I can't handle this. There's 12 dudes who weren't Jesus, who didn't die for my sins. Why do I need to know their names? Now, church, uh, a long time ago, and the ancient church would have found my ambivalence perplexing. For millennia, the church have celebrated the saints and focused on their lives as unique ways to, to glory in God and to celebrate the story of salvation, especially the martyrs, those who died for their faith. And so what changed? How did I get to be so ambivalent about it? And, and I'm going to bet that probably this stands for some of you, maybe most of you. Well, the trouble is that over time, the saints began to be seen as important in their own right instead of important as reference to Jesus. The saints began to be seen as people who had accumulated so much merit or so much holiness that they could somehow share it with you. And so saints, instead of being coming talked about, became venerated. Or instead of being uh, following their example, they became prayed to because you want to get in on a little bit of what, of what they have. So the practice of praying to saints, of, of finding relics, the body parts or bones of saints, and then trying to use them to get a little bit more grace came in. Um, and then there was the whole thing of various saints who would do miracles would, became associated with various individual particular things, like St. Blaise, who is the patron saint of sore throats, because he supposedly cured a child from choking on a chicken bone. Or there's also saints put in the purpose of nationalism and patriotism, like St. James, the elder, who is the patron saint of Spain. Santiago de Compostela. Now, Santiago is Saint James. And the people in Spain are very, very sure that James, the elder, managed to make his way to Spain, plant the church, 
and come back to Jerusalem in about 10 years in order to be killed by Herod in 44 AD. Now, why? Well, here's what happened. The saints, they kind of filled the gap that was left in the pagan imagination where all the gods once lived. You had all sorts of gods and paganism, and they filled all these various purposes. And, but when, when you change to the true God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it, it seems ugly to get God involved in sore throats. And so we need a patron saint to kind of, you know, fill in the gap here, because Jesus is just too important to care about my sore throat. Now, in the Reformation, Lutherans rejected a lot of that. We stopped praying to saints, we stopped venerating them, but we did not stop celebrating the saints. In fact, our confessions, label, they, they name three ways, three reasons we have to continue to commemorate saints. And the first is to give thanks for what God did through them. So we give thanks for the way that Jesus exercised demons out of Mary Magdalene so that we can give thanks for her being the first witness to the resurrection. The second reason is so we can strengthen our faith. We can see how Jesus restored Peter even after he denied him three times. And we can take heart when we have fallen and denied Jesus that Jesus receives us like he received Peter. And the third thing is that we can get examples to follow. We can imitate them. Stephen forgave his murderers as they were literally stoning him to death. And by looking at James or looking at Stephen, we can find strength to bless those who persecute us. Now, there's a, there's a final reason I want to add that I think this is actually important. It kind of comes from C.S. Lewis, and, it, and it's stated in a different context. In one of his books, I can't remember which, he, he talks about how our personalities kind of overlap. That there are aspects of who you are that only emerge when you're around a particular other person. Maybe a lifelong friend or a spouse or a mom. You act differently around your mom than you do around me, I hope. Right? Which means, in, in C.S. Lewis's context, that when you lose someone, when someone dies, you don't just lose them. You lose the way that they brought something out of a friend, a common friend. You lose pieces of other people who were close to them. Our personalities, he says, overlap. And I think this is... A powerful reason for seeing that if we're going to get to know Jesus in all the aspects of his personality, we need to get to know those who were close to him, those who brought out little bits of who he was so that we can see Jesus more clearly by seeing James. And that's what we're doing today. We're going to understand, we're going to talk about James the elder. We're going to focus on James so that through James, we see a little bit more about who Jesus is. Now, the first thing we need to get about James is, well, which James? Um, this is James the Elder, meaning uh, James the son of Zebedee. He's one of the first ones called by Jesus um, to follow him. He's the son of a wealthy fisherman named Zebedee from Galilee, from Bethsaida, actually. Oh, sorry, one more thing. When you sit down with him in the resurrection to you know, share some food, you will not be calling him James. You will be calling him Jacob, because there, the name James does not occur in the Greek New Testament. It's by some weird process, the name Jacobos, which is the actual Greek name for this guy, um, and all the other Jameses, uh, became James. And, and linguists still don't understand this, actually. It's a really weird thing how a, a K, Yaakov, could fall out and be replaced by an M. It doesn't, etymologically, it doesn't make any sense. But somehow it happens. When you meet him someday, he will be Jacob, like the patriarch he was named after. But we're going to call him James because that's how we all know him. So James, first, one of the first of the 12 called, his brother, John, you know from the gospel and from some other places, and Peter and Andrew. And it's important to get these four guys together, Peter, Andrew, James, John, because they are kind of an inner ring of Jesus' apostles. Of these 12, there are four, and three in particular, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus takes with him to some very intimate moments. When Jairus' daughter is dead, 
And they bring, and Jesus sends everyone out of the room, except for the parents and Peter, James, and John, so he can raise this little girl from the dead. On the transfiguration, when he brings a few up the mountain to reveal his glory to them, who does he have? Peter, James, John. Mount of Olives. Jesus is staring over Jerusalem, <coughs> lamenting over it. And the disciples, four of them, these, these inner four, ask him about the last things. And Jesus gives them an extended teaching time on the last things called the Olivet Discourse. In Gethsemane, Jesus is waging his final temptation against they're taking the easy road and skipping the cross. And he goes off to pray. And who does he take with him? Peter, James, and John. James was a person that Jesus wanted with him at some of the most important parts of his life. He's a man with whom Jesus had a very close relationship, and one that even involved him giving him a nickname. And because he, he named James and John, Jesus called them Boanerges, which is sons of thunder in Aramaic. Now, why sons of thunder, we don't really know. Maybe they had like a fiery temper. At one point, they were going through Samaria, and the Samar Samaritan village said, no, Jesus, you can't stay here. And so James and John say, hey, can we call down fire like Elijah and burn them up? Maybe it was a, a little bit of temper. Maybe, though, it was, it was ambition. Maybe they were a little bit powerful in their characters that they wanted to be first. That's kind of what we see in our gospel lesson. When we meet James and John and we get, a, we get particular choices and actions that they made, they're trying to edge out the other disciples. And that's not actually something that you do. when You don't, you don't, you don't actually go to someone really important and ask for a favor unless you think that guy kind of likes you a lot, right? So when we're dealing with James... We're dealing with someone really ordinary. We don't find out much about him, other than that he was probably a little fiery and ambitious. But we find out that Jesus included him and brought him close. He was no hero, even in his death, even in his death. We have these extended narratives. Stephen gave this long speech before he was killed. Paul talks about his suffering again and again. No, no talk about that. In the, in the Acts lesson, he's just killed by a sword from Herod. No, no, no great reason why. He is not terribly special, other than that Jesus brought him close. And in seeing this, what we see is that we get a sense for who Jesus draws close to him. Ordinary people. Not special people. Not amazing people. Not people who, who work so hard that they don't get any sleep. Not the Martin Luthers or the St. Augustines. But ordinary people. People who are fishermen. People who don't have a lot to bring for themselves. Who aren't known for being terribly intelligent or courageous. Jesus wants a very ordinary person close to him. Imperfect people. In other words, people like you, people who aren't bringing a lot to the table, but who have nothing really other than what Jesus gives. And that's the second thing that we see is, is Jesus' extraordinary patience with what James does not have. In our gospel lesson, it's a pretty simple story to understand. James and John are asking Jesus for a special favor to sit at his right and left in his glory, but to really get how, how awful this was and how devastating, you have to understand the context. This is the second half of Luke's gospel. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's taking this time. He's, he's kind of sent away the crowds, and he's giving his, his disciples a leadership seminar. He's told them he's going to die and rise. And this is the first time in Jesus' ministry, halfway through, that he says, by the way, I'm coming to get killed and rise from the dead. Peter says, I don't think that's a great idea. He gets a fourth name, Satan. Get behind me, right? And so th through these passion predictions where Jesus tells them three different times, I'm going to be crucified, he's talking only to his disciples, and he's telling each of them what it means to be a leader in his kingdom. So they're in a leadership seminar with Jesus. And if they had been taking good notes, here's some things they would have learned. They would have learned that they need to deny themselves for the sake of the gospel. 
They would have learned that they were not supposed to be consumed with wealth or with power, but to seek their treasure in heaven. They would have learned as, as leaders in Jesus' kingdom to focus on Jesus' words above everything else and to remain humbly, quiet, and dependent on God's work. They would have learned to choose the role of the least so that they could be servants of all. They would have learned to relinquish control and let God determine what's best. And they would have learned, in a very surprising for them way, to keep children at the center of their lives and their ministry. And after giving this whole lesson, Jesus says a third time, one third and final time, we're going to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be betrayed and handed over to sinful men, be crucified and condemned, and the third day rise. And what is James and John's response? Can I be first? Can you imagine how disappointing that was for Jesus? How disappointing. Yes, Jesus felt emotions, and he felt frustration, and he felt disappointment. And that's the point at which I would be pulling out what's left of my hair with you if you were doing that. If we had just taken a seminar, take, take the elders of the church, and we go on a seminar and talk about forgiveness. And we talk about how, you are, how Jesus' gospel empowers you to forgive your enemies, how you're called to do it. We, we spend three days talking about forgiveness. And at the end of it, one of the elders raises his hand and says, there's this guy at work. And I just, I really want to get him. <laughs> I'm not Jesus. Thanks be to God. I would feel deep anger and frustration. But Jesus is endlessly patient. What does he do? He simply continues to teach. To tell them one more time, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, but it will not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you should be a servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In this exchange, Jesus is taking those disciples who are closest to him, who should understand him better than anyone, and who utterly fail to get his kingdom, and he's saying, let me tell you one more time why I'm here, what my kingdom looks like. His patience is on display by virtue of James's ambition and selfishness. And it's that same patience that's going to carry him through Peter's betrayal. It's that same patience that it's going to sustain him in the garden, when his disciples, his three closest friends, keep falling asleep while he's in agony. It's that same patience that's going to carry him through the trial, through the shouting of the crowds. It's that same patience that's going to carry on his shoulders the life of the world. It's that same patience that's going to carry you, that did carry you, all the way to the cross, all the way through hell and back. We learn a bit about the patience of Jesus, the endless, bottomless patience of Jesus by taking a good long look at James's ambition. In fact, well, let's go to the third thing. The third and final thing we learn about Jesus from James is that Jesus finishes what he starts. Jesus starts with a very ordinary person. Come follow me. He is patient with this very ordinary person, this very arrogant, selfish person, even unto death. And he completes what he started when he called this ordinary person. For Jesus told James he would drink the cup that Jesus drank and be baptized with the same baptism. Right here in this context, these are metaphors of Jesus' death. They're not talking about the Lord's Supper or baptism. 
It's talking about you will die. You will suffer like me. And he does. He does. James does die. The first apostle to be killed, the first one to be singled out and persecuted for the church. And just like Jesus, he dies in shame. He dies with no one really paying attention. Other than that, he died. I mean, just look at, 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 Acts 12, at the Acts account. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And now we're going to tell a story about Peter. He's a preface to Peter's story. Even his death was not that heroic, not that glorious. He came to share in the glory of the king who was crowned with thorns. He came to share in the glory of the king whose, whose power is weakness. He came, to care, he came to share in the glory that is shame because he came to share in the suffering of Jesus. We get no heroic speech. We find out that we do not find out whether he confronted Herod in some way that made him singled out. We don't find out that he, he was having bold leadership or doing great things. Maybe he was trying to call down fire on Herod for all we know. We don't know because the point is we didn't need to know. Only that he died, only that Jesus finished what he started in James. In James's inglorious death, in his sharing of the cup of his king, he was baptized in that same bloody suffering, and he took his place, seated in the glory of Jesus' kingdom, the glory that dripped from the cross. And when Jesus says to you, when he said to you in your baptism, or when he says to you today, come follow me, He's beginning that same work in you. He's bringing that same endless patience to bear on you. And he promises to finish that same work that he began in you. He summoned you into a journey of discipleship like James to be sustained only by his long suffering and patience and to be completed by his spirit. With, his ba with, his, with that patience, he bids you to pray every day, forgive me, my sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He knew how disappointing you would be. Jesus knew right from the beginning of all things how disappointing you would be, how disappointed you are with yourself, how disappointed you are with others, how others are disappointed with you. He knew all that. He did it anyways, like he did for James, because he knew he could finish what he started. And James is proof of it. He's proof that God brings ordinary people into his kingdom, that he's not interested in the heroes of self-renunciation. He's interested in imperfect people, people who trust Jesus' patience to be enough. He's not interested in those who do great things, but those who can trust in Jesus to be their one great thing. Even you, even when you falter, even when you fail, and even when you can't remember the name of all 12 disciples. Amen. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ guard your heart and mind. Amen. As God's people, we go before him in prayer. And doing so... Sorry. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. 
That's www.emmauspasco.org.